Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's our weekly look at the world of science and technology. I am Vikram Kulkarni. Coming up on today's show: LED, geothermal energy, and risk analysis. Also joining us is Terry Yen to talk about anthropogenic peat. We'll also find out what ivory is made out of. Stay tuned for all of this. Plus the world famous question of the week and the Rocko Time 5000 here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. Oh, and I'm Charles Lee. You're Charles? Uh, well, I'm an avatar of Charles. So, uh, what's going on in the world of science this week? Uh, well, the world of science is full of wonders, as usual, and uh, we have a new story—a uh, story about geothermal plants. Oh, geothermal! So, like sucking up lava from the planet to、uh, do some good stuff, right?、Uh, well, I don't think they're trying to touch the lava yet, but I guess they're trying to get to the lava. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, if well, you dig a hole deep enough, all this lava starts spewing out. Is that right? Uh, uh no, I don't think they're they're risking that. I, I think the idea is really—they have certain areas in the world, as as you know. Where where you have magma chambers, so the lava is still way deep down there. Okay. But it's locked in there, but it's it it's high enough where you can access the heat of the lava. Okay. And what really happens is the naturally how geothermal energy is seen is through geysers, where you、right. see this steam or water come、right. in contact with these hot chambers, gets really. High temperature steam, and then it gushes through fissures and comes out to the surface. What we are going to talk about, though, is geothermal energy. How to tap it for electricity? So this is like renewable energy, right? This so it is produce any CO2 or greenhouse gas. Right, exactly. So it's it's one of the greenest energies out there.、Uh, you don't, and you are going to get the steam directly to run the turbine and then to create electricity. Oh, okay. So water so, goes down, it gets heated up or superheated, and the steam gushes out. It drives the turbine. That's right. Essentially, that's.、Uh, And and initially, what people used to do were was they would actually get to the geyser sites and lock in the steam to run、okay. the turbine. Okay. But a lot of these plants then are get the efficiency starts dropping. So nowadays they have new mechanisms where they actually are able to they're able to route water into these chambers,、mm-hmm. convert it to steam, and、uh-huh. then tap this steam that's created from the heat and then run it to the turbine. And get the energy. So, I mean, where can we have this? Can we have it anywhere? Can we have it in like the middle of downtown, the city, or、uh, it, is it very specific places? It, it's only specific places where you see these geothermal fields, and that's why it, access is often an issue. But、uh, also, you have to be careful of、uh, how you 
tap these because you don't want an uncontrolled release where where the fissures go out of control. Oh, and, like a meltdown. <laughs> that's right, essentially. Well, I don't think it goes to that proportions, but... Uh, you know, I want to see what lava looks like. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't think it ever gets to the lava point, but it's usually okay. steam causing fissures, and uh-huh. the fissures would then make the, the area unstable and cause uh, problems okay. to areas around them. In the U.S., is geothermal pretty prevalent, or is it something that's just only being tapped right now? Uh, it's it's not obviously not very prevalent. People are obviously trying to make a big push for it. The DOE has started a big effort, and uh, it, yeah, there is a study by MIT uh, that has concluded that uh, uh, the geothermal energy is actually a largely untapped resource for electricity in the United States. And there is uh, there are multiple efforts. One of the big thing that's come on recently is the geysers plant in Northern California, where mm-hmm. they had stopped producing energy, and now they're going to restart it with a newer technology. With because of the better efficiency now that they get, they're again able to generate electricity that is commercially viable. Okay, great. And if anyone's interested in reading more about this, uh, where should they go? Go to CNET News. (laughs) There are some stories about the MIT-led study that talks about geothermal energy. You can also try going to PG&E's site that talks about the geysers uh, plant up in Northern California where they are generating uh, geothermal energy. And there is a site in Southern California that PG&E is looking at that they're going to start a new plant over there. Okay, very hot. Okay, so it was a couple months ago, but um, (laughs) did you have a Christmas tree up? Uh, Me, no. I just ran away to Tahoe. Uh, Okay, you didn't pass by Sacramento? Uh, I did. Oh, you did? I did, yeah, yeah. Okay, did you notice a tree? In front of the Capitol? Oh, uh, I I missed it this time. It turns out, uh, I guess this is a first, uh, California used LED light bulbs to uh, light up their trees. Oh, wow, okay. Moving on ahead, huh? Yeah, so uh, being more energy efficient, um, you know, using um, better materials, it's actually a little bit cheaper since they actually use a hydrogen fuel cell uh, to uh, power it rather than just using the grid. So it was a little bit more expensive, about 15 cents uh, per hour as opposed to 5 Sense it would have taken with the regular electricity, that's but that's still uh, very, very cheap since LED lights, they use up to 10% of the power that would take to light up a traditional uh, uh, Christmas light. I see. So this is, uh, is this because of the, the effect that they are diodes versus they are uh, vacuum bulbs? Yeah, so these uh, LEDs, uh, light-emitting diodes, they're very efficient. Uh, the good ones, they can convert, you know, up to 90% of the electric power into light, whereas, you know, incandescent bulbs, it converts 90% of the electricity into heat, 10% into light. It's the other way around. So uh-huh. LEDs are very efficient, and uh, there's actually a lot of uh, money riding on LEDs becoming the next source of lighting, um, not just for trees, but also for indoor lighting, uh, bulbs, mm-hmm. which are uh, powered by LEDs. And, you know, one um, very prevalent example is uh, traffic lights. A lot of the new traffic lights use LED light bulbs, and they're very efficient. They last, I don't know, five, six years without replacement, and they use, you know, one-tenth of electricity. That's right. And, and if uh, I've noticed that they also seem very sharp uh, when, you, when you look at them. Is, yes, yes. Is, is there a particular reason for them, or...? Just um, that they're brand new. <laughs> just they're brand new. And, you know, one of the problems they've had, and they're sort of actually beginning to address it pretty well, is 
how do you get the different colors balanced? So light, white light is, of course, you know, red, green, and blue. The phosphors or the different uh, LEDs for them die off at different times, so it, you know, it sort of mellows out over time. But at the beginning, they're incredibly bright, and it was actually, you know, um, irritant to some of these uh, people looking at lights, but I think they've gotten the, the technology down where they can get it pretty much even, and so you'll get pretty much um, uniform performance uh, throughout the life. Oh, I see. So anyways, this is uh, one technology which is you know, probably going to enter our houses in the near future, and uh, we should certainly um, look forward to uh, using it. So there's many articles about this. Uh, one of them is in the Chemical and Engineering News. Uh, there's also uh, recent articles in news.com. So, Vikram, is the cat out of the bag? Ah, uh, cat out of the bag. Well, uh, yeah, it, so to say, I guess, uh, <laughs> it's not your usual cat. It's more uh, cat for catastrophe. Oh, okay. Uh, I was expecting like an invisible cat or, you know, <laughs> uh, no, magical uh, uh, What I'm really talking about is, is catastrophe modeling, but it's pretty commonly called cat modeling in the insurance industry. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, uh, uh, it, it's a big uh it's a big business thing, uh, really, uh, for the insurance industry. Uh, usually, usually a process by which they try to limit their risks. To so, put it in so short. is global warming responsible for Hurricane Katrina? <laughs> oh God, I'm not answering that question <laughs> ever. You, you don't want Allstate on your back, huh? <laughs> That's right. Uh, maybe even Al Gore is afraid about that one. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, so so cat modeling. Uh, is is a large field, but what I'm going to try and talk about is something called cat bonds. Cat bonds. Uh, and what this is is uh, that when there are several catastrophes that the insurance industries have to cover. Okay. Uh, natural, you mean after the fact. After the fact, because they have, uh, you know, because they get claims from yeah. their clients. Yeah. Uh, there are there are several ways. There are insurance companies who uh, insure clients, you know, homeowners, businesses. Then there are reinsurance companies who insure insurers. Uh, okay. And they are the ones who really bear the high-end catastrophe losses. What the I insurers see. do is they will insure a homeowner till a particular level. And beyond that level, any higher loss is covered by these large companies called reinsurers. I see. And uh, sometimes uh, they are not willing to insure insurers for these because they can't uh, quantify these risks and if they can't quantify them, they don't want to deal with them. Uh-huh. So what insurers are now coming up with is our bonds, where uh, instead of trying to get insurance from reinsurers, okay. Okay. they create these bonds where there are these investment banks or other financial uh, companies which will buy these bonds. And what happens is... Uh, these bonds will pay you a higher interest than usual bonds, except when a catastrophe happens. If a catastrophe occurs, you will not only sometimes not get interest on these bonds, but sometimes you may lose part or all of your principal. So it's sort of a gamble for the person buying the bond, Perfect. Right? So I, I wouldn't recommend it this to a person uh, you know, who works 9 to 5 or something. Right. But this is usually by companies who are trying to hedge 
their bets by ah. uncorrelated risks. Right. The, the key word here is uncorrelated because a natural uh, hazard or natural disaster is completely uncorrelated with, say, a stock market meltdown or a real estate issue. Uh-huh. And so what they can do is they can take part of their portfolio and put it in this part. So now it's still paying high interest rate when stock market goes down, but maybe when their other markets are doing well, there uh, and there is a hazard they lose mm-hmm. some money on this mm-hmm. so they're basically their their rate of uh, return on their investment is balanced out mm-hmm. and oftentimes that is what they're looking for more than getting a, a lot of money they're looking for continuous uh, or even money or Payback. even cash flow that's I right see. and so that that's why cat bonds have become very popular recently and it's a very intriguing feel uh, topic nowadays in the insurance industry. So at the end of the day, you know, aren't you just betting on like perception of the threat and you know, feeling what the risks are or are there some real mathematical hard numbers that there are, there are there are hard numbers uh, there are there is, you know, of course it's a it's a risk I mean it is uh, a catastrophe. Catastrophe by definition is high, you know, low probability high risk. Mm-hmm. Low probability high consequence event. So as a result, uh, what's going to happen is uh, you have these uh, hazard, uh, you know, basically uh, probability curves is what you have. Mm-hmm. And you try to develop uh, risk cutoffs, points, up, you know, certain amount of risk that you can handle. And yes, in a way, it is a gamble, but maybe, yeah, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> Have you gone swimming lately? Uh, no, I've been lazy. <laughs> Is it too cold or? Uh, well, you know, I could find a heated pool, but really, I'm lazy. Okay, how how, how heated? I don't know. Uh, Up to boiling. Seventy degrees would be fine. Seventy. I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can go up higher. <laughs> uh, so apparently, it turns out that um, certain creatures, um, namely extremophiles, have the ability to survive, and in fact. Uh, rely on environments which are extremely hot for most other creatures. Um, say, for example, up to 92 degrees centigrade, which is um, wow. about what, 180 Almost degrees. boiling, yeah. Yeah, 180 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And so what they found is one of the mysteries is how do these creatures um, take up certain elements? For example, uh, all life needs carbon, hydrogen, and, of course, some nitrogen. And they found uh, one of the mysteries is how do you get the nitrogen into the um, into the life forms, and it turns out you need to convert it first to ammonia. So, what uh, a group of scientists led by um, Mazmi Meda at the University of Washington in Seattle have found is a um, an archaea, uh, a microbe that is able to uh, convert the nitrogen into ammonia uh, through a specialized enzyme. And the notable thing about this is they can do it at these extremely high temperatures. It was actually quite difficult for them to to find this particular uh, enzyme. And what what they're interested in right now is how do you sequence the protein for that enzyme? So so now they, they are able to absorb the nitrogen out of the air, uh, so, uh, out of the water, sorry? So in the water, they have gases dissolved, and that includes nitrogen. Okay. And so it can grab the, uh, the nitrogen molecules and then use the enzyme to convert it to uh, ammonia. Okay. So, you know, um, there are people very interested in this because especially in an industrial setting, if... For example, you want to make fertilizer, ammonia, you can take the nitrogen from the air directly 
if you get the, the sequence of the enzyme, you can most likely design one that will work not under the seafloor, but here in like an industrial setting to, okay. uh, to convert nitrogen into ammonia. I see. So basically have a much more efficient production cycle. Yeah. Anyways, this is really, um, from a bio- biologist's standpoint, it's a pretty uh, fundamental discovery, and it was reported in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grok you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Terry Yen joins us to talk about anthropogenic peat moss. Well, joining us today is a special correspondent, uh, Miss Terry Yen, who will tell us a little bit about what's going on in the field. So um, I guess I'm supposed to be funny because The Daily Show introduces their funny people as special correspondents. But uh, all right. (coughs) Well, science is supposed to be funny, right? I know. Funny looking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're just hiding our misery here. (laughs) By portraying it on our faces. (laughs) So I was reading this letter to the editor in the CNN News. Yeah, I read that all the time. Yeah, I pick it up like once in a blue moon. But um, on this rare occasion, um, they were talking about using sugarcane to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in an attempt to, you know, curb global warming and all I that jazz. most plants do that. I know, but then the thing with sugarcane is that it's, more efficient, and I guess you could plant more of it. Ah, oh, so it's and like, like a weed, basically. Yeah, they're they're a type of tropical grass, uh-huh. and um, if you plant massive, massive amounts of it, then they can remove the carbon dioxide from the air, and then when they rot, they'll form this thing called anthropogenic peat, or AP peat. Okay, so it's basically like compost that stays on your ground. Yeah, so then you're effectively removing carbon dioxide from the carbon cycle. And so, therefore, you know, instead of curbing carbon dioxide emissions to stop global warming, we're just moving carbon dioxide slowly. Our solution, (laughs) our problem is solved, right? Yeah, I don't know. But at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of, I know, but there are a lot of environmentalists who are very worried because, I mean, where are you going to get the land to plant so much sugarcane? I mean, it's going to. 
you're gonna have to hack down. Brazil does it. Yeah, Brazil was. I was reading an article about Brazil wanting to do it, and I was reading this other article in Yahoo, I think, about Indonesia wanting to put this into plan because mm-hmm. not only would it remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and make us all happy, but it also creates job opportunities. And Ooh. apparently, there's a lot of unemployment in Indonesia. So it's pretty cool. I mean, there are ups and downs mm-hmm. with this, good and bad, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I heard, uh, I guess, the President um, Bush is actually going to make a trip to Brazil in March. Oh, really? Something about uh, ethanol and tariffs. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. I heard about um, how you can use ethanol, too. Right, right. For fuel now. And I guess if people haven't heard, there's some special project going at uh, Berkeley Labs and here on campus with uh, uh, British Petroleum, BP, on uh, developing biofuels. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, really cool. Yeah, it's a multi-year project. It, it is, of course, uh, controversial because, you know, some people argue, is it the right strategy to go towards uh, biofuels or, you know, rather than, um, say, electric vehicles or uh, energy efficiency in uh, vehicles? You know, my personal view is, you know, this is one of many strategies which... Yeah, we should just, I mean, pursue. just like in an inconvenient truth, I mean, many strategies will build up right. and thus... Okay, very decreases. cool. So they're not worried that these sugar canes will go out of control and, like, basically, you know, swarm all over the world and uh, suffocate And every us. kid will be as hyper as, <laughs> you know, a hyper kid. Good stuff. And welcome to the show again, Terry. And yeah, we no uh, certainly hope you come back soon. Yes. This will be pretty sweet. And we were just talking to Terry Yin on anthropogenic peat moss. Rekha Grok you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what slime molds are and the Rockathon 5000. So stay right there. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, Miss Terrienne has agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokatron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today's question is, what kind of grass is it? And here are five subjects. Uh, subject number one, what type of grass is it? Uh, Michael Jackson. Well, so I don't actually know that many type of grasses, except the obvious, uh, since I do live in Berkeley. But I, so I guess I'll just extend this to what type of plant it would be. So Michael Jackson. You don't hmm. think he's white corn? No, he's more plasticky. He needs to be something unreal and rigid and has like a broken 
knows? <laughs> so some really ugly plant. I guess I guess he would just be corn because he's kind of bland. <clears throat> okay, corny, right? Yeah, he's definitely yeah. He's just, just trying it. too hard. He's trying too hard, which is what corn does. Oh, mm-hmm. well, it comes in different colors now, you know. Apparently, yeah. See, it's trying too hard. <laughs> All right, subject number two: um, Star Wars character Yoda. Oh, he's a shrub. A shrub. Yep, he's a shrub. <laughs> <laughs> a short one, right? A short shrub but that strong. talks with inverted sentences. Mm. Um, subject number three. Uh, super physicist Stephen Hawking's. Oh, that's an interesting one. That would have to be a really smart plant. So I guess a cactus, because they're really resilient, right? They can, they're always full of surprises. Yeah, and they hold a lot of water. (laughs) Yes, which Stephen Hawking, we know, (laughs) does too. (laughs) He holds water. He holds water. (laughs) And the secrets to life. Yeah. Subject... Number four, uh, the Mormon church. What kind of plant would it be? The Mormon church? Huh, this type of plant would have to... I think it's going to be a vine. A vine? Yeah, a vine. It just spreads. For some reason, I think of vines as being ingrown. Ingrown? Hmm. Yeah, that is uh, (laughs) kind of disturbing, I see. I guess I always found vines very disturbing. All right, and of course, our very perennial favorite... (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> Subject number five, George W. Bush, the president of the United States. What kind of plant, <laughs> weed, grass would he be? Well, I guess he would be weed. A weed? A bushy type, yes. Or or the drug. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this week's edition of the Garakotron 5000. Oh, yeah, no problem. And Slimey here with the answer to last week's question of the week. What are slime molds? Well, slime molds are not really fungi, but they are moldy and slimy, and they move about like a slime. In fact, they're part of the amoeba family, and that's what slime molds are. Oh my, Captain. It's Sulu. Oh my... What's the difference in the engine? It's a difference engine, Captain. How are we going to cope? Well, I will. I'll consult Grox at Hotmail.com. Oh, my. You're not going to win anything. But you just might tell the difference. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I am Vikram Kulkarni. If you want to reach us on the web, you can dial us up at www.grocks.net. Stay tuned for more music and have a great afternoon. <laughs>